I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Corey Clark. She's a psychologist and director of the Adversarial Collaboration Project at the University of Pennsylvania. Corey, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks for having me. Corey, you've been doing not just psychology research, but meta-psychology. <laughs> I have, yeah. The, I guess the psychology of psychology and psychologists, yeah. The psychology of psychology or the science of science. So what is this yeah. adversarial collaboration project? So the adversarial collaboration project is essentially, it's something I've been working on with Phil Tetlock for, I guess, two or three years, where we're trying to persuade our peers that when they have a disagreement with another scholar, especially an ongoing one where they've been debating back and forth and publishing contradictory papers against one another for years or decades, they should really get together and work with the person that they've been disagreeing with and figure out what's going on. In my dream world, when people publish contradictory papers, the very first thing they would do is call up their adversary email and say, hey, this is so interesting. I found this and you found that. What's going on? And then work together, figure out what is the actual disagreement here and how can we test it? And then hopefully by working together, they can forward a more unified perspective into the scientific literature. So other scientists aren't just confused about what's true. And then it make, it's even harder for people who design policy or interventions based on science when they have all this contradictory information. So it's an initiative aiming to change the norms of disagreement in science to be more productive and less just competitive and destructive and confusing. Do you know Lisa Feldman Barrett or Mark Solms? I know of Lisa Feldman Barrett, but I don't know if I've ever met her. And what was the second mm -hmm. name? Mark Solms. Not to my knowledge. So Barrett what is, is their like deal? one of the world's most famous emotion researchers. And Mark is a neuropsychologist. I, I did a podcast with him a couple of years ago. And he studies, his early research was on dreams. And now he's doing more computational approaches to emotion. And his work is grounded more in animal theory. And Lisa's is more, I think, social constructivist. And the over the course of their debate, Mark was writing a critique of one of her theories of emotions recently. And they said, before you write and publish this, why don't we have a series of discussions to make sure that I'm not, we're, we actually are on the same page about what each other believe. And over the course mm -hmm. of the conversation, it seems like they actually didn't really disagree on any facts mm -hmm. whatsoever. They were just defining <laughs> things very differently. Mark believes that we have these basic innate emotions like fear and disgust. And I don't remember if happiness was one of them. And then Lisa's more like emotion is all just valence and arousal, these physiological things plus context. So it's more of a top down brain thing. And Mark didn't disagree with that, but it seems like that the main disagreement was on the nature of that categorization in talking about even different per, uh, perceptual systems at the neuron level, even receptors for light or for smell, they're all chemical and they look very similar. So it's only once top down, you look at the whole thing and you call them different mm. systems. So I think Lisa was taking an approach more like the whole brain is doing its own thing. And these categories don't really exist in nature. The categories only exist once you have metacognition and can look back on it. And then Mark was taking more of the approach from the bottom up. We have separate sense systems and we have separate emotions. And I think 
both positions were valid and they didn't really disagree on the facts again, just how to define them. So that was interesting to listen to. That's something that I've seen a lot. There are a lot of ways people who think they are disagreeing actually aren't disagreeing. Like they might be, as you say, defining things differently or looking at the problem from a sort of different angle. But there's also people making like broad claims when what they really mean is something a little bit smaller than that broad claim they're making. There's people, people emphasizing something and emphasizing it in a non-quantifiable way. So you might say something, people do X more than scholars think. And it's what do scholars think? How much have people been okay. saying people do X? So there's a lot of fake disagreement where people think they're disagreeing. And I think even the people who have been disagreeing for years or decades think they've been disagreeing. But when you actually get them into a conversation together, you realize that their disagreement is tiny or actually even just non-existent. But I think even that can be super useful. If, if you think you've been debating someone for a decade and then you find out you literally agree almost 100%, that would be really useful to know. And then maybe you can frame things in a, in a way that make it clear, like, this person's right about this, but here's what I'm adding to the conversation. And I think a lot of this just comes from the sort of incentives in science where we're really strongly incentivized to differentiate ourselves from other people. We have to be saying something new and different and flashy and bigger. And so all of this kind of causes people to make claims that are a little bit unwarranted and a little bit bigger than what they're really trying to say. And it, it creates the illusion of disagreement when sometimes, sometimes there is, but a lot of the time it seems like there is and there, there actually isn't. I work on human connectome project of studying adolescent brain development with my advisor, Leah Somerville. And we've been talking about this, about how our goal, really, you would hope that the last 20 years of neuroscience research, even though it's relying on small samples, especially for developmental studies, that the last 20 years of research is solid and we're not going to find anything new. And human connectome is like a big study with thousands of people. So the goal on one hand is, yeah, let's just confirm everything else and we don't find anything new and it's like a nice science sanity check and then there's, there's another part of it that's that would be exciting if we say everything is wrong here's what the <laughs> results actually are yeah w which would be better for the state of neuroscience <laughs> i don't know i don't know it's, but... it's a win as long as you trust the actual better quality results yeah that's true that's true but it i don't know how you how do you incentivize people to, if the former is true, if we know what we're going to know, and I think a lot of this is true in, I don't know about neuros, not neuroscience actually, but in a lot of psychology and social psychology, a lot of what social psychology has been doing clever demonstrations of things that everybody's known for hundreds or thousands of years, <laughs> or repackaging old ideas into something that sounds new, or stuff that's just straight up not true. Like those are the three sort of like novel categories of social psychological findings that's not to say there's nothing new happening there probably is but those kinds of findings are are really common but social psychologists can't just go look i'm showing this thing that everybody's been talking about it's been in every movie and every novel for hundreds of years but here's a study that shows it they have to make it seem like they're doing something counterintuitive they're showing something new otherwise they can't publish their paper and they can't get a job so it's not just psychologists themselves that are the problem. It's also the incentives in science and what journals want to publish and who universities want to hire and what professional like people 
professional societies, who do they want to give the awards to? You have to correct both the sort of desire on the side of the scholar as well as the incentives that the institutions are providing to scholars if we wanted to focus more on the truth and not just on the flashy new thing. Have you seen the study on whether people from rural or urban backgrounds do better in military environments? I don't think so. So you mentioned some of what social psychology does is take what's basically common knowledge, but then actually get data to prove it. And a lot of people might look at some psychology finding and say, of course I knew that. You're not really showing anything new here, even though you're showing it with data. And there was one experiment where they surveyed a bunch of people. Who do you think is going to do better? People raised in rural environments or urban environments in terms of military success. And I'm not sure how they measured that, but maybe it was something like promotions or uh, medals received or something like that. And then they showed people the data. And in one group, they said, yeah, that the people from rural environments did much better. And in another group, they said the urban environments did much better. Why do you think that is? And in both cases, everyone came up with these nice stories. Okay. That's completely obvious. The ones mm -hmm. from rural backgrounds are, they're going to be like the tough farmhand guys. They're going to be used to being out in the dirt. They, they're tough enough for military. And then if you told them it was urban, then they said, okay, that makes sense. They're used to being a bunch of, around a whole bunch of people. This is mm -hmm. fast paced, the rural ones, um, this is all new to them. And there was actually no difference. People post-hoc made all these justifications mm -hmm. and either story made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, you can't, the, I knew it all along bias is real. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't necessarily take people's words for it. Like on Twitter, which happens all the time, people are like, duh, or this isn't true. <laughs> Um, but a lot of social psychology findings you can find in like Nietzsche or like Tolstoy. If you go back hundreds of years, people, they were phrasing them a little bit more eloquently, um, but looking at similar issues. But yeah, everyday people tend to think that once they, once you tell them something's true, they tend to think that they knew it all along and then they have a really clever explanation for why. So yeah, I, I don't want to come down too hard on social psychology. On your Twitter you have a photo of Nietzsche and next to it, you have you with a mustache on. <laughs> That's so, true, like, yeah. How does what connect? To your dissertation or your psych research? Oh, yeah. So my dissertation, again, Nietzsche had a lot of these ideas. Nietzsche was actually also, I think, not the father of like social intuitionism or moral intuitions, but he was one of the people saying it early on that people's desires shape what they believe to be true and everyone thinks they're objective, but they're really not. But my dissertation was specifically looking at motivated free will belief or the idea that people believe in free will or increase their desire in free will or believe other humans have more free will when they want to hold someone morally responsible or they want to punish another person. And I don't know if that idea came to me on my own or whether it was floating around back there from like my philosophy 101 days. But at one point I was presenting my poster at a conference. And I'm like, oh, when people want to punish other people, they increase their belief in free will. And they're like, oh, yeah, Nietzsche. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> and lo and behold, yeah, Nietzsche has a quote that says something like, essentially, we made up this concept of human responsibility or moral responsibility because we want to hold other people morally responsible. I think he attributed it to a religious perspective. But it is basically that idea. So when people are wanting to punish another person, and, and this has been found many 
this is related to my point about repackaging old ideas and new, new fancy boxes. That's basically what my dissertation was too, because scholars have been publishing since the 1950s. I think the first person was Walster and then Mark Allegy and Josh Nob, um find that when people cause bad outcomes relative to neutral good outcomes, they attribute more responsibility. They find the person as having more control over the situation, as being more causally responsible for the situation, as having intended the behavior more. And then I found they also attribute more free will and they believe more in free will when they want to punish people. So the idea is essentially that our our notions of responsibility are somewhat driven by desires to hold other people responsible. And when we want to blame someone, we find someone to blame. But when we don't care because it's something boring or neutral or positive, we're not as likely to search for an agent to hold responsible for the outcome. You ever work with Byrie Cushman on any of this? You'd think I should know that if I have, or <laughs> I don't think I have. It's possible. He's a co-author on a paper of mine, but if so, I don't know him well. Yeah. We've talked about some of this stuff, moral desires or, or beliefs being shaped by punishment. And then that desire itself being shaped by something like we want to teach people a lesson. And then <laughs> moral luck is another thing we've talked about. One thought is, okay, let's say someone's drunk driving, two people are drunk driving. And at one instance, someone is crossing the street and they get hit and killed. And now it's a DUI manslaughter. And in the other case, they just get pulled over and they would have hit someone had there been someone on the road. They were just as inattentive, but it was really just a matter of luck, whether someone was there or not. So the one who killed someone, yes, killed someone. So that's really bad, but the other one could have killed someone. So the fact that they get less punishment is really just due to luck and his interpretation of that, it, it wasn't even saying the non-killer DUI is worse. It's more just like these things that happen outside of your control, but we need to use them as teaching lessons. You punish the person who does have bad luck extra harshly, just as a way of saying that could be you in the bad situation. So don't even risk it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those kinds of situations are hard because there are a lot of those kind of like experimental philosophy studies where there are a lot of different ways to explain them. So like one thing, if you take two people who drink and drive, the behavior is the same, but on average, the ones who killed people probably actually were doing more irresponsible things. Like the person who had a few beers and they live in the country and they're driving like three miles down the road to their house where they've never, ever seen another car pass them because they live in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. That person's going to be less like, not, I'm not condoning that you shouldn't drink and drive ever under any circumstances. But I'm just saying like that person is going to be less likely to kill someone. And they know they're less likely to kill someone. Where someone who like gets a drink in L.A. and then drives an hour back to Orange and passes literally like tens of thousands of cars on the way they're going to be more likely to kill someone. And they know they're more likely to kill someone. So even though we try to control these things and say this is a case of luck, in the real world, like outcomes really do tend to, on average, represent how risky a particular behavior was and how reckless that behavior was. But people, of course, aren't perfectly rational about these kinds of things, but they're rational in a lot of ways. They really do take a lot of important things into consideration. But yeah, I take your point that there's a, a, 
people might not get punished as harshly as they they should have been because they got lucky or punished harsher than they should have been because they got unlucky. The philosophers. You also have to think about the public and how they would react. If a drunk driver killed someone and they're like, okay, you're on probation for six months, people would be pretty mad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in these thought experiments, the, the goal is generally, okay, imagine everything else was the same. It was literally just this one luck, bad luck element. And then the criticism is, but that's not realistic in the real world is complicated. And yeah. I always think about that with the trolley problem. I'm like, you could never know that pushing the guy off the bridge would cause the trolley. To st- you uh-huh. can tell me it's going to cause the trolley to stop, but never ever in the real world would you know that pushing someone off of a bridge would stop a trolley. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, when in my first year seminar, with Fiery. So we have this class where all the different faculty come and present on their research and then we write a response paper. For Fiery's, I was writing about this and I was writing about the trolley problem. And the idea was, okay, let's say someone reluctantly says they would push someone off to save the five people. And then another person enthusiastically does it and says, okay, but it would be even better if we chop them up and then spread out the body parts on the train. So there's more friction. So it's more likely to actually stop. And we could even take out the intestines and tie it to the nearby tree and use it as a net. So that'll help stop the train as well. And we'll be even more likely to save the five people. And I'm like, why do we respond to that thinking this is a crazy psychopath, even though if the goal is truly to save the five people, he seems more motivated. That's true, but also if you have all this time to chop this guy up and be tying intestines, how about just get the people out of the way? <laughs> like, they're right there. If you have, how long does it take to chop someone up and tie their intestines around a tree? Like, an hour at least? Uh-huh. Just tell the people to move. Is it, so you're very like, practically minded. Because I go down these, like, philosophical <laughs> rabbit holes, and, like, in the, in this hypothetical, it gets so extreme that it's, you don't, you can stop reading realizing everything except the point that you're trying to make, which is in this case, there's something about these more seriously entertaining the thought of killing someone as opposed to making it seem like, oh, this is a reluctant thing that I've never thought of before. Yeah, but what if they were like, I really don't want to do this, but we could chop the guy up and make it even more like, don't I don't know if I would say I'm, I, I would say that I've I've always enjoyed a good ph- philosophy thought experiment. I am a little bit skeptical of how much they tell us about human psychology in certain cases, just because they are so unrealistic. And humans didn't necessarily evolve to judge individual cases. They evolved to judge kinds of cases and kinds of people. And some of these philosophy experiments feel more like magic tricks than revealing of human nature to me. Yeah, I thought you were going to say they don't reveal much about morality but they do reveal a lot about human psychology because maybe there's no right answer, but the way that people stumble about trying to get to some answer says a lot about it. our way of Okay, let me say, they don't necessarily reveal a lot about human psychology in the way people want them to or on the, in the precise topics they want them to. Yeah, but yeah, like the Frankfurt experiments, those ones with the guy you couldn't do otherwise, the person who's voting and there's someone's going to change the way they vote. It all supposes that this person's able to make a free decision before they're forced or not forced to vote for someone. So I don't know. I'm I've I'm rarely persuaded by a philosophical thought experiment, even though I, I do enjoy thinking about them and especially <laughs> tricking other people with it. <laughs> the free will question, I think, is another example of one of those where 
people probably agree way more than they realize. And the, the disagreement gets overhyped or it's mm-hmm. gets definitional. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, Kevin Mitchell is a, a neurogeneticist who just wrote a book called Free Agents. And, and we did a podcast um, chatting about that. And then right around the same time, Robert Sapolsky is currently writing a book called Determined, uh, the, the Science of Life Without Free Will. And really, and I think Roy Baumeister, my postdoc advisor, I think he's writing a book on a scientific theory of free will. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't seem like any of them disagree on the actual facts about the neuroscience or about our evolutionary past. It's just how do you define free will? So Sapolsky seems to take the stance of, okay, literally everything has a cause, biological or physical. You can trace it back to the entire causal chain of the universe, back to the Big Bang. So there's no room for freedom whatsoever. And then uh, Mitchell's argument seems more like, of course, once you consider everything in the universe going back to the Big Bang, there's, there are no degrees of freedom, but there are still meaningful degrees of freedom. So you can say that a human has more free will than an animal or an adult has more free will than a child or someone without brain damage has more free will than someone with brain damage. So he's defining free will in terms of degrees of freedom, whereas I think the people who reject free will are defining it in this very all or nothing way where it's like the only way that you could truly have free will is if you're like God, somehow independent of of all this causal history. I guess I'd want to know how you're defining degrees of freedom there, because my, like, if all of human behavior is caused by a combination of your genes and your environment and the causal history of your life, it's not necessarily that maybe a human does have more degrees of freedom than a dog, but also it's that their behavior is caused by things that we consider to be like more thoughtful, maybe more responsive to incentives, more responsive to predicting what's going to happen in the future. I'm capable of thinking out if I do X, then Y will happen. If I don't do it, then this other thing will happen and that's better. So I won't do it. It's more complicated, but my behavior is still just being caused by my more sophisticated thought process. So is that more degrees of freedom? It's still just being caused by my genes and the environment the same way my dog's behavior is. It's just like a sort of more sophisticated machine. So I don't know, but I agree with you. Like a lot of the free will debate I find to be really frustrating because it does come down to this definition issue. Do what we consider to be human behavior, almost everyone agrees human behavior is caused by genes and environment, some combination of that. And most scientists and philosophers are scientifically minded. They believe in the natural world and that humans are a biological species as part of it. It's just, do we think that the kind of cognitive sophistication humans have warrants the label free will or does it warrant responsibility? And that's to me, not even really an empirical question. It's a, it's like a preference or a, maybe it's a philosophical question, but it's 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 not one that can be answered. Because if humans don't have free will or responsibility, then at least nothing that we know of has it. So there's a part of me that thinks... Unless we want to throw out the concepts entirely, we might as well make us that upper limit. But I wonder if it could be, I hate the philosophers have a tendency to define concepts into smaller and smaller. They break things off into more and more categories of things. Is that what we're doing? (laughs) That's what I'm about to do, which is that I feel like the concept of free will or the idea that humans can somehow choose among multiple courses of action in a way that overrides who they are and who they've been in their history and their genes and their environment. That doesn't make sense to me. From that perspective, I feel like moral responsibility is somewhat unwarranted. Yet, I'm a fan of moral responsibility because I think 
it helps humans behave better and treat one another better. So I would preserve the concept on utilitarian grounds, even if I don't necessarily think it's warranted in the way some people think it is. I don't know what that would be called, though. Well, what do you think about two types of free will? So there's the scientific causal type. And then, yeah, we're in agreement. There's not much of that. And then there's something like moral free will about like how much responsibility should you attribute to someone? And that's more of a subjective judgment. So maybe if you ask about really any sin or crime, you can say, how blameworthy is this person? And or what punishment do they deserve? And people will have sort of a stock answer. And when I think people are imagining, okay, if some generic human did this, and I don't know much about the rest of the context, how upset should I be? But then once you start plugging in things, and this is where the degrees of freedom idea comes in, it's like, you have this sort of genetic predisposition, or you have this history of abuse, or you grew up in this context, then suddenly it's no longer a generic human you're evaluating. The degrees of freedom are going down. So your answer or your moral judgment seems to get more precise, and maybe the context would make you judge more harshly, or maybe it would make you judge less harshly. Yeah, I just, it's hard for me to know how could we make a sort of, I guess you're saying it's subjective, but what if it's true that a psychopath's behavior is just as genetically caused as mine? It's just that mine tends not to be as deviant as a psychopath's behavior. I tend not to cause as much harm to other people. Does that mean that I have more free will if they're both equally genetically caused, but in one case, this person's just like abnormal? relative to the average human being <laughs> like mm -hmm. is that i don't know are there more degrees of freedom or is it just is the same amount of degrees of freedom leading to different things and in some cases we want to discourage them and in other cases we don't yeah it, on the anti-free will side i've heard an analogy of if there's a rabid dog that goes and attacks someone you don't really blame it morally but you're still gonna lock it up or put it mm -hmm. down and people have talked about psychopaths in that way, presuming that it's just completely genetically out of their control, bad biological roll of the dice, you should feel sympathy for them, maybe like the animal with rabies, but you, they still can't go about in society. And you know that it sounds pretty harsh when you're comparing people, when you're comparing criminals with like animals who don't know any better. And, and that, that actually really is harsh. I guess the only silver lining to that is you're not just comparing them, you're comparing everyone to these sort of deterministic animals. Yeah, in the same way you could say it's not a psychopath's fault for having, maybe they have desires to kill people or something. It's not your fault that you don't want to kill people, right? Yeah. So like that <laughs> distinction to me doesn't make all that much sense. That much sense. The thing with the animal thing is, I've thought about this too. If a dog kills somebody, you often blame the owner for the dog's behavior. But the difference with the dog and how we're like, we don't, we feel bad for the dog. We don't want to have to put the dog down, but we have to put the dog down because they might kill another person and we're trying to prevent that. The thing that distinguishes humans is that humans care about their moral reputations. And so we can punish people in a lot of ways. We don't have to kill them to stop them. We can shame them and say, you're a bad person. You're mean. <laughs> and then you'll feel bad about yourself and you'll want to be nicer in the future. And so that's what moral judgment is to me. And some people say we should get rid of that. We should get rid of like moral judgment and we should just treat people like a broken machine. You have to go to rehab for six months and then we'll let you out and you can reintegrate into society. But 
moral judgment is a really gentle way of changing human behavior. It's saying, I don't like what you did. I think that was, I think you're an asshole in this situation. And you're like, oh, I don't want people to think I'm an asshole. And then you change your behavior. And if you get rid of that, if you get rid of the asshole judgment, what are we left with? We're left with locking people up or what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are the alternatives that are going to be superior to a moral judgment? So do you think there's a, a double standard for the negative and positive type of morality, like blame versus praise? Because I think that some people in the no free will camp, Sapolsky is a good example of this. They take it seriously enough that they're really humbled to just in the same way that the psychopath doesn't deserve moral blame for their urges. I don't deserve credit for being a good person because my, my good behaviors were just as genetically determined. So I, I admire the people who, who make those arguments because that's very consistent. But it seems like often people, the free will bears more on the punishment judgment than it does on praise judgments. Like people, maybe this came up in your dissertation work, that people are more likely to want to discount their bad actions, but still keep the free will credit for their good actions. That wasn't in my dissertation. I do have a study. A lot of my work has looked at when people want to punish other people, they attribute more free will to them. We did have one study in this other project where we looked at addiction, where we had people write about their own addictive behavior and either it caused harm to another person or it was fine. So an example would be like if you went gambling and you lost all your money and you couldn't pay your rent that month and you screwed your roommate over, that would be a behavior with a bad consequence or a harmful consequence. Or you could go gambling and break even and everything's completely fine. So people wrote about times that when they're like addictive behavior or I guess impulsive behavior resulted in bad consequences or was neutral. And people attributed less free will to themselves when their own behavior resulted in harmful consequences. So that does seem to me to suggest that people want to downplay their own responsibility for their own bad behavior, whereas they want to turn up responsibility for other people's bad behavior. And I think that kind of makes sense because it's a lot more important to hold people responsible for their bad behavior because those are the things we really want to deter in society. We don't want people behaving in antisocial ways that can cause, that can undermine trust. It can cause a whole society to be dysfunctional. People are getting murdered. Whereas, yeah, we would prefer people to do good things, but it's not going to be as threatening or rather as important for a group to thrive, for people to be behaving, let's say, which I think is why responsibility really is tied up with bad behavior much more than with good behavior and especially neutral behavior. We don't even think about responsibility for neutral behavior. Who kicked the ball that went straight? No one cares. It doesn't matter. But this sounds like the moral version of the fundamental attribution error. Yeah, it would be similar to that. I've tried to explain this in a different way. I came up with, are you familiar with error management theory? No. Okay, so this is the idea that when costs were asymmetric throughout evolutionary history for humans, people should have evolved a bias toward a particular tendency. So the example in one of the first papers looking at this was that men have a tendency to overestimate women's sexual interest in them. And the argument is that it's costlier for a man to have a woman who is sexually interested and miss out on that mating opportunity than to think a woman might be interested when she's not and get rejected by that woman. So men systematically are biased toward thinking women are more interested than they really are. And I think 
I've tried to apply this to the sort of motivated free will idea where I think it's potentially costlier to not punish someone who deserves to be punished and who can be deterred by your punishment than to than to wait to fail to do that than to punish someone who potentially doesn't deserve to be punished because maybe the thing was out of their control. When it comes to a person taking advantage of you and they're responsible, they did it, they intended to harm you, they intended to take advantage of you. If you just let it go, it signals to your social group that you're a sucker and you're an easy target and other people now will come and try to take advantage of you. That would be really bad and something you should try to avoid. Whereas if a person caused harm to you um, and you assumed, oh, it was probably an accident they didn't do on purpose and you don't punish that person and they, wait, am I getting this confused? I usually have a nice chart that helps make it clear. It makes sense <laughs> to me. It's, it, it sounds like the presumption of innocence in our legal system then mm -hmm. is pretty opposite to what our, our natural evolutionary psychology is. It really might be that way because of the way our natural psychology is. And it causes a lot of people, if everyone handled their own justice for themselves, I think more people would have revenge sought upon them and the punishments would be way harsher than what they are in our like people. If you look back at like old punishment codes, some of the punishments are truly outrageous. There's one for if a tavern owner waters down drinks at a bar like they're not they're charging you more than they should be, given how much corn is going into making the alcohol, <laughs> then the punishment is death by drowning. We've, as societies and cultures have advanced, we've reeled in the human desire to punish other people, to get revenge on a broader set of people and to punish them much more harshly than they probably should be punished. What do you make of the evolutionary psychology arguments that these religious moral norms, it's really a way of psychologizing or personifying something like the collective social watchful eye. So the idea of God up in the sky watching and judging everything you do, that might be a personification of just society watching and judging everything you do. do you, are you asking, what do I think about the function of the sort of omnip, omniscient God? There's two questions wrapped up in there. One is just from an evolutionary psychology perspective. Yeah. For moral psychology reasons, could that be an adaptive uh, mm -hmm. reason that religion evolved? And then the second part is why have we seen over the last 2000 years or so moving towards these less harsh punishments and, and more of a, I don't know, Western ethic where people are granted presumption of innocence and so forth. Yeah. Those are big questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think to me, the fact that religion appears to be so widespread, not just currently throughout different human populations from all corners of the globe, but also throughout time, makes me think that it's been doing something important or for some reason it's really taking advantage of our human psychology and particularly our need to explain things and feel like we have control over things. There's a bug in here. I'm not really an expert on that, but yeah, I think it, it probably serves an important function. It helps regulate human social behavior without having to be observing it all the time. If I can outsource my punishment to God, then I don't have to watch you constantly because I know you're going to handle yourself because you're afraid of going to hell, basically. But yeah, in terms of 
punishments becoming less severe over time and the presumption of innocence. I don't really know about that one. I don't, it does seem that societies moved that way and were appalled by what humans did just even hundreds of years ago. There was, I think somewhere in Europe, there was this thing where I think they would trap the rats on the bellies of prisoners like with a bowl like a metal bowl on top and then heat Mm -hmm. the bowl so it gets so hot that the rats would chew through the prisoner's body to escape (laughs) we've heard of that like that's horrible yeah i do think sometimes when in describing this even though it's a gruesome thing and gruesome makes people uncomfortable and sometimes when people are uncomfortable they laugh (laughs) why am i laughing what the psychology is about That's a good, I'm sure, I'm sure there's an expert on that topic, the sort of laughter at things that are like too horrific to take seriously or something. I do a lot of, I do that too. It happens in therapy. Sometimes in the most serious moments when you shouldn't be laughing, you start laughing. And I don't know what Freud would say about that. Maybe it's some unconscious way of trying to diffuse the situation. Yeah. I'm a bad case because I laugh at pretty much everything, no matter how serious (laughs) it is or not. But I agree that people have a tendency to laugh when things are like too horrible to really think about and maybe process. But yeah, I don't know. I I guess it's probably a way of indicating I personally don't think that this is a thing because I think it's so ridiculous that it's laughable. Uh Like I would never do that to other people. I'm way better. Uh I don't know. Yeah, that is a good that's a good question, though. Somebody must have studied that. But yeah, that, that would seem connected to virtue signaling, if that's true. Yeah, it's an involuntary virtue signaling. I that, will that never cool. kill prisoners by making rats chew through. Uh-huh. You mentioned that uh, we punish not only through making people eaten alive by rats, but mm-hmm. often more through shame. And that seems yeah. to be particularly prevalent now with social mm-hmm. media, how easy it is to, to shame people. You get these sort of cancel culture mm-hmm. mobbings. Is that something that has always been in our psychology and now it's just we have a technology to to facilitate it or do you think there's already unique cultural changes that are making attitude worse you're reminding me of something that someone asked me recently and i forget where i was or what the context of the conversation was but they were asking about free speech in the united states and whether part of the reason people are so vicious on twitter and regulating speech in western societies is because we have free speech. If the government put people in jail for using racial slurs, we might not feel the need to punish that person ourselves by publicly humiliating them, shaming them, and calling on a mob. And this is related to the question you just asked, because it's possible that because our legal system has moved toward what some might perceive as relatively lenient. We have this presumption of innocence. When a person kills another person, presumably the victim's family a lot of time wants to kill that person, but instead they might just go to jail for 20, 30 years, depending on how they kill that person. So it might be that because we have this judicial system that's perceived as maybe on the side of the perpetrator more than the victim, that people feel the need to be like vigilante justice warriors and like taking matters into their own hands and making sure people suffer consequences. So it could be that. I do think social media exacerbates these things because you can get kind of points, it seems, for calling people out um, 
although a lot of people really don't like it too. So that's interesting to me that people don't feel the consequences a lot of the time of shaming another person and then people calling the shaming the immoral act more than whatever the person did that caused them to be shamed. But yeah, and then the other thing is just the social media is so unnatural, like human social groups a long time ago. If you did something wrong, maybe like 12 people would be mad at you and then they would forgive you over time. Now, millions of people can be mad at you, even though they don't know you. They don't know anything about your character. They don't know how you spend your free time or if you're a good, a good friend or a good father or whatever. And and it's just I think people can't feel what like proportionate punishment would be when it comes to Twitter. I was actually thinking about this with Francesca Gino, who I guess a lot of people, maybe you don't know her, right? Actually, no, haven't. <laughs> okay. But it seems to me she probably perpetrated fraud and she probably deserved to be punishment, punished and she was punished and she was publicly humiliated and she, I'm going to guess she's going to lose her job. Was this she's... academic fraud, the one who uh, published fake data or something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in addition to all of that, a lot of people also were piling on Twitter and my I think I'm not a very like vindictive person and I like almost started to feel bad for her even though I think what she did was wrong just because I'm like how much punishment is the right amount of punishment in addition to potentially losing your job never having a career again you lost your whole entire reputation everything you've been working for in your whole entire life you're being you're being shamed to a degree how many more thousands or tens of thousands of people need to pile on and talk crap on you for the punishment to have been big enough i don't know what the size should be but i just don't think people are really thinking about the size of punishments on social media and how those are potentially impacting the people who are on the receiving end of those punishments yeah people are not a lot nicer in person like a lot There's of the so things much nicer in media no one would ever say to someone's face and i don't know if that's because you'd be afraid of Getting, getting punched physically in the face. or just you actually watch someone's eyes and their face and realize you're being hurtful maybe if you're more empathetic uh, so it makes sense to me that people are more vicious online and it makes sense that online especially if you can be anonymous you can be even more vicious because I, I think mm -hmm. that most of the most hateful comments are coming from trolls rather than like these verified profiles but then what I wonder is why are they even doing it to begin with? Isn't it a waste of time if this is a stranger <laughs> you've never met to just pile on this, I don't know, this blame bandwagon? What do you think they get out of it? I think about that all the time with people who seem to, there are these accounts that seem to be on there just to try to make other people feel bad. But then I also try to put it in the scale of Twitter and how many people are on there. If we looked at all of the humans of the whole entire world, how many of those people are psychopaths or sociopaths or narcissists or something. They're just people who are mean, who get pleasure from other people. In a lifetime in, of people you meet face-to-face -face and you have a conversation with, you might only meet a handful of those people in your lifetime. But if you go on Twitter, there are 10,000 of them because everyone is on there. And those are the ones that you're seeing. So I find it bizarre. And I'm also like, don't these people have jobs? <laughs> maybe they don't have jobs but 
But yeah, they might be a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction of people and they just appear outsized because in the real world, you don't meet the number of people that you come across on Twitter. So this would be a cool study that you could do. Let's say you're looking at moral outrage across a variety of different domains. So people who are outraged about something that on the surface is about, I don't know, gender bias or race bias or something political or something uh, about, I don't know, war in Ukraine. It could be anything. And then the question, is it the same 10,000 people who are just latching onto whatever controversy they can, or does it seem to be a unique subset of users that actually uniquely care about each topic? Yeah, that's actually interesting. There, those data probably exist from people who've already studied these different topics. And you could look at handles across domains and see who are the trolls and they're the everything troll. And then who are like the trolls in particular domains? Mm -hmm. Like they only hate people who cross this one particular moral boundary. I bet there would be some overlap. I don't know how yeah. much, but I bet there are people who are on there. And certainly it seems to be the case. Like I see people say mean things to people for no apparent reason whatsoever. Like, they're like, I got a job. And the person's just, you're ugly. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> so just some people are on there to ruin people's days. Um, Out of however many users, it's only 10% who even engage whatsoever. So who even or share anything. And then of those, it's probably another 10% who actually comment or message. And then of those, maybe 10% are negative. But still, when you're dealing with hundreds of millions of users, you're getting tens of thousands of the negative trolls. Exactly. And for some reason, those accounts seem to perform reasonably well. Maybe it's all the trolls liking all the other trolls things to get the other trolls more attention <laughs> and visibility. Um, but yeah, and then people latch on. I I don't remember a lot of the nice things people have said to me on Twitter, but I remember some mean things people have said to me on Twitter and humans have this tendency to focus on the negative. You want to know who your enemies are. So I think just even in our brain, they take up more space than they should based on what we see. And then we see more than we should based on how many of those people are there are in the real world. Do you think the motive could be something like, oh, acquisition of status or like within this tribalism, if there's a bandwagon of hate and you jump on it, you're like, you get to be part of the in-group and you get to signal your virtue and you're just placing yourself in the role of judge, which is authoritative role, even if you didn't earn that. Yeah, I think there's that. So there's, you get to join this like moral tribe that has a purpose and a cause and you contribute to that and you get temporary status within that group. But then I also think people get a lot of pleasure from taking other high status people down. Because mm -hmm. if you can topple someone from the top of the ladder, that makes more room for me or if someone like me or somebody who likes me, someone who might give me status one day. So I do think people really like to go after high status people, which means I think if you have 5,000 or more followers, some people hate you and some yeah. people are gonna go in your county meets. And yeah, I think it tends to be people trying to take down other people so that there's more room on the status hierarchy for themselves to climb um, so that there's that part too. But yeah, people, of course, are trying. If I see other people I like attacking someone else, I might think, oh, if I join this coalition, then I'll get points and they'll like me more. Now that status hierarchy motive, that sounds from an evolutionary perspective, much more like a male motive. 
But then mm. when you think about this type of antisocial behavior, like the bullying, gossip, rumor spreading that isn't physical in the developmental literature, that's, that behavior is much more common in females. So then the question is, is are there gender differences in this type of online bullying? Because you, you could see different explanations making males or females be the one to, to seem to be leading the charge. Yeah. So I think some of the gender differences seem to be overblown to me. Both men and women want to gain status. They do it in slightly different ways. But I also think the gossip thing has been overblown because of the the discrepancy. So men are much more likely to engage in physical violence than women. And so that's mm -hmm. a huge difference. And then if you like look at, well, relative to physical violence, women are more likely to engage in gossip Um but the gossip difference between men and women, I don't think is that big. It's nowhere near what the violence difference is. So I think men use verbal aggression. Somebody could give you a better estimate, but some of these studies, if you look at the, the differences are not impressive at all. Like women are not that much more likely to engage in verbal aggression, if at all, in certain contexts. I think both men and women are probably trying to gain status is more important to men. But I also don't know how much of that is driven by like the tippy top most ambitious men being more desirous of status versus the average man versus women, like how big those differences are. My impression is that it's men more than women, but I don't know. They're in, that's tough because there are more men on Twitter. So I don't know relatively who's more likely to do it. And mm -hmm. it, it could be different by issue talking right. about other subject specific trolls. That exist. Yeah. And women and men are probably likely to be mean to each other for different reasons. One thing that seems to be really irritating to men is me other men who have seemingly unearned status. So those mm -hmm. people, the people who are viewed as charlatans or grifters or whatever, probably get more hatred from men on Twitter. Whereas maybe like attractive women are more likely to get hate from other women on Twitter. You also see in the types of insults, some evolutionary psychology there. So it, it seems more insulting to call a woman a slut and more insulting to call a man a loser virgin. Do people call people loser virgins on Twitter? I, play I played dude. a they lot of video them games when okay. I was growing up. So at least among teenage boys, that I'm sure would be a go-to. Whereas if you called a, a teenage boy a slut, you'd probably be conferring status. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's funny because probably among teenage boys, most of them are virgins and they're just calling each other virgins. That's exactly what them. it was. That's why it's so funny. It's virgins back. calling other virgins. Uh -huh. yeah. But then if you think about it seriously from this sort of evolutionary psychology status way, what they're like, okay, yeah, you're 14. You should be a virgin and that's not going to change. But when you're calling someone a virgin, it's almost like you're implying you're so low status that you're going to stay a virgin and implying mm -hmm. that. Yes, I'm 14, but I'll grow up into the type of stud that won't be called this. I see. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And that probably also by calling someone else a virgin, it's a way of signaling that you're not a virgin, even if you are. So it's like a sneaky way of lying right. about your own status without actually lying. Right. Because why would you call someone a virgin as an insult if you are also a virgin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, yeah, people probably often use insults at, toward other people to try to signal to other people what they're not. While we're on the subject of sex and gender differences, I know you've written about that in psychology and historically 
psychology is alongside basically every field was male dominated. And now I think psychology is over 70% female and even more so in my field of developmental. I was just at a conference that was probably like 80% woman. Yeah. Developmental has, developmental has probably been primarily women almost since it became a discipline, maybe shortly after. Yeah. So the gender composition has been changing and I've written about how that appears to have changed academic priorities. So I've studied attitudes among psychology professors toward academic freedom and other things like how much should we be protecting students from potentially psychologically upsetting materials? How much should we be interfering with the pursuit of truth and science if it has potential to uh, cause offense to particular groups? How high should our harm threshold be before we suppress science? Essentially looking at the trade-offs between censoring potentially real good, true information versus protecting people from offensive scientific findings. And we see very consistent differences among men and women at all levels. So if you look at male and female undergrads, male and female graduate students, male and female professors, men are much more supportive of the pursuit of truth and academic freedom. And women are more supportive of these kind of moral goals. And they tend to think that we should be pursuing truth and science as a means to help people, which means that science that's perceived as not helpful or potentially harmful doesn't seem as valuable to women as it does to men. And so the fact that we have these huge shifts in the gender composition, not only of psychology, but of academia on the full scale now, if you look at faculty members at um, universities in the U.S. across the board, they now are majority women. Um, and these changes in the gender composition of academia have coincided with all of the other things, so all of the other cultural shifts, the using the DEI statements when we're choosing to hire people, some of these journals now adding moral criteria to their publication guidelines saying we won't publish or we'll even retract papers that potentially could harm human social groups. And a lot of the, the concern with the safety is in putting in the trigger warnings and worrying about the microaggressions. And all of this stuff is coinciding with women essentially taking over academia. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think what we're seeing is the priorities of women Whereas it used to be the priorities of men and men were more about academic freedom. And like, we're going to, I'm not saying that they were pursuing the truth very well. There's a lot of bullshit in science. That was the goal or the stated goal anyway. And now I think women have changed the culture and some of the, I guess, agenda of science has changed and I think will continue to change because women, I think, are only going to become more dominant. The idea of science only being in a pursuit of a moral goal sounds really nice. But then we were talking about earlier, the morality part is so subjective in a way that the objective data isn't. So it's who gets to define what the actual goal is. And that should be a discussion. But then once it starts becoming institutionalized, the journals then get to decide what the right moral goal is. And maybe you could still have some sort of um, I don't know, free market about this, where different journals have different mm. morals, but it doesn't seem like we have so much of that free market. It seems like it snowballs into once one view becomes dominant, the other ones start to get filtered out. Yeah, 
that's my exact concern. I have a couple concerns. One is harms from science are often really indirect and impossible to predict. <laughs> and then the harms of not having the truths are hard to predict. And the example that I give is this paper that was retracted a few years back that found that male mentees of male mentors fared better than female mentees of female mentors. And it caused this huge kerfuffle about if women are worse mentors than male mentors. And then people freaked out that this was going to undermine women in science. And the the authors retracted the paper and the journal put out a statement about how they were going to invest in programs for women. The assumption, the completely untested, no data forwarded assumption was that this was going to harm women in science. But we don't know that. Like if that paper stayed published, would that have harmed women in science or would it have helped women in science? Because now people would be like, oh, this is a really interesting finding. We should figure out why this is happening and then help women develop their mentor skills or look into possible solutions so that this is no longer true. And nobody really considered that possible consequence of keeping of retracting the paper that it could cause harm to women so it's this very like particular kind of harm that people are worried about and so far as i know no one has forwarded any data that these kinds of harms are happening no one's forwarded data that retracting or rejecting papers that have the potential to undermine the dignity of human social groups that's not going to cause more harm and so it's coming from the assumptions of editors at journals and the boards and presidents and leadership of these professional societies. And it's getting completely untested. And I don't think there really is a market because it, you have monopolies is what you have. For example, I'm in social psychology. The Society for Personality and Social Psychology, SPSP, right? I always get it yeah. confused. Yeah. SPSP. <laughs> There's so many SP things that it basically has a monopoly. It would be really hard for another society to come in and compete with them because they're so massive. They have all the money. Everyone's a member. They have the big conference that everyone wants to go to so they can see everyone there. Even if people disagreed with them, a lot of people would be hesitant to leave. And similarly, like the journal Nature, who is spearheading a lot of these changes to consider harms before we decide whether we want to publish something or if we want to retract something. Maybe some journals could compete with them, but they're pretty well established and people are going to want to publish there even if they disagree with them because who cares about moral principles when you can get a nature paper on your CV, right? Yeah. It, hypothetically, if it could happen that you could have a market and then Maybe policymakers realize, hey, we can't rely on the scientific findings that come out of this journal because they're prioritizing morality over truth. Yes. This other journal prioritizes truth. Whenever they publish something and we design an application or policy, it works because it's based on mm -hmm. reality. That would be a way to sort it out in the market. But I just don't think it works that way. The path from science to consequences is long and confusing, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it's been interesting and a bit frustrating seeing a lot of these moral claims not being as evidence-based as you'd think. Diversity is one that comes up a lot. And the, the central claim seems to be that having a more diverse student body or set of researchers means just better exchange of ideas. And honestly, I think that's plausible, um, but I haven't seen any data on it. And the data that we do have seems to be more about personality measures of diversity or diversity of opinion, getting people across the political aisle to talk to each other, for example, seems to be a good thing. But then if it's diversity 
of identity-based measures, that seems to be only true insofar as people with different identities have different belief systems, which again, might be true to the extent that they're shaped by their identity and experiences. But it seems like what that selects for uh, with this sort of echo chamber thing we've been talking about is people with diversity of backgrounds, but not of beliefs, which then doesn't accomplish what you want. Yeah, the relationship between diversity and positive outcomes is very muddy. It's going to depend on what kind of diversity we're talking about, in which context and what outcomes we're looking at. It's not at all clear to me that anyone can make the claim that diversity is good. End of sentence. It would have to be in this one particular way, in this one particular setting, we've discovered that this Mm -hmm. is true. But that's not how people talk about it. It's become more of, I think, a faith than a empirical claim. It's more of a value than an empirical claim. It's like, who cares if it's good or not? Diversity is a good thing. In the same way, you'd be like, not murdering people is a good thing. Okay, we can all agree on that. Right. The problem is like diversity also poses all kinds of challenges. And it's just not clear to me that when it comes to academia or science of all of the tons of things we could care about a lot of things to care about in the world like why is that the one we're so obsessed with (laughs) there's so many things to obsess over but but we've decided we're going to prioritize this over our other stated goals that we've been claiming to pursue for decades it's 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 unusual It, it it is interesting because if you question it in, even in good faith, it makes you morally suspect because oh, yeah. if you say, is diversity really good? It, it almost makes it sound like you're trying to imply that it's bad. Even if you're taking this scientifically neutral stance and, hey, I'm open to it being good. I just want to see data. And I'm a diversity fellow in my department. And we've been talking about this because I do see that a lot of the things that in principle I agree with morally, I'm just really surprised by the lack of data. And, and then even if it is just this moral cult and you want to evangelize people, the, the types of people who agree with you without data are already going to agree with you. And the types of people that who disagree with you because you lack data probably only will be convinced if you have data. So either way, it seems like a good idea to get if you want to more <laughs> to convert your people to your belief system. That suggests the possibility that people aren't collecting data because they fear what the results might look like. That seems Uh, to happen when certain papers are retracted or often they're retracted not for the moral grounds, but on methodological grounds. mm -hmm. But Or at least the methodological grounds are used as the justification. In general, it seems like the methodological criticisms are true. It's just that Mm -hmm. people suddenly become much more aware of them and often it it slides through review if it's uh, a paper with a more favorable outcome. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's the problem with sciences. Our scientific evaluations are always a little bit ambiguous and you can care a lot about a limitation or not. For example, I had a paper that I know was like a little bit not PC. I published tons of papers with U.S. only samples. And this in this paper, we had U.S., U.K. and Hungary samples. And a reviewer was like, how dare they publish this only paper West. and only have three countries? like your journal publishes papers with the u.s only all the time (laughs) but you decided to care about it here so yeah you there's always not always maybe there's a perfect paper out there i've never seen one but there are always things that 
you can criticize. It's just, is that criticism a deal breaker or not? And it's going to be more of a deal breaker when you don't like the findings. And it's not going to be a deal breaker when you do like the findings. And I think the same goes for retraction, like with the paper on the female mentors, like that paper would not have been retracted, I don't think, for this operationalization issue. Like you don't have to call it mentorship if you don't want to. You can call it senior co-authorship and the problem is solved, right? That was the concern was the operationalization of mentorship and that, that was the main concern I saw anyway. And yeah, people just have these double standards, but they're impossible to prove because we don't have carefully controlled studies of the scientific publishing and retraction pro uh, process, or at least not many. And the ones that exist are usually pretty small samples because they're really hard to do. It, it allows these double standards. And with the diversity thing, I, yeah, you, you can get in a lot of trouble for challenging it and even just for asking the data on it. And I guess that's, that maybe alone is a piece of evidence that it's not actually an empirical claim. It's a, it's a moral claim. But if how it is, have, then say it's a moral claim, right? How have people generally responded to these criticisms or, or these, I don't know, these flags that you're raising? Many different ways. <laughs> uh, yeah, some people like what I'm doing and admire what I'm doing and send me praise. So that's nice. Some people really don't like me and criticize me and probably think I'm an enemy to social psychology or something. Or maybe behavioral sciences more broadly. Yeah, no, I get a lot of a range of responses. Some of my work is hard to publish. The stuff that criticizes social psychology. I have a couple papers under right under review right now, looking at censorship in science and self censorship among professors, and it's happening on a large scale. If a lot the of censorship paper gets censored. That would be really ironic. <laughs> it. I. I feel like there's a decent chance it will be. <laughs> It won't be sense. Eventually, I'll post it somewhere if it comes to that. But yeah, do I think it? Do I think some of my papers have been treated very unfairly in comparison to other papers of mine that were lower quality but had more boring conclusions? Yes, I definitely think that's happened. But this day, you can't stop information from getting out into the world. You can just stop it from getting into a journal. So if it doesn't get into one journal, it'll get into another one eventually. But yeah, we see that psychology professors, a lot of them are self-censoring their views on this kind of stuff related to the DEI stuff, related to whether moral concerns should be impacting scientific evaluations. And we see that a lot of them are really scared. So not everyone has fully drank, drunk the Kool-Aid, drunk the Kool-Aid? <laughs> um, it can be either. Either. Okay. <laughs> a lot of them haven't, but they're too scared to speak up. And so you have this huge, silent, majority sitting by watching everything happening and just not wanting to get involved because they don't want to have to pay a reputational price themselves, which I don't totally blame them for. But at the same time, it gives a lot of power to the people who are instituting these changes that don't have the support of a lot of people, but they think they do because no one's opposing them. I've been thinking about this sort of academic polarization and, and you don't see this term used much anymore, but you remember five years ago, intellectual dark web was a big thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if it was people like... I think it's because they, they had a falling out. They had a falling out. Yeah, it, they it, don't it, like each other anymore. Generally see th those traits in certain people. And I see that in you and I mean that as a compliment because it, it seems like the only thing that would band this group together wasn't even a group, was just like 
they had somewhat contrarian academic views and were basically prioritizing freedom of speech and let's just focus on the data and I don't care about controversial research. I want to know what's true. Mm -hmm. I don't want that to have to be contrarian. Like, why does commitment to truth or science have to be contrary? It's that seems so. so, (laughs) It seems sad to me. Yeah, I don't want to contribute to the polarization saying that people who aren't in that sort of intellectual dark web type don't care about truth. But it seems to be more like this priority of values you were talking about. Some people view truth itself as like a highest good and other people see truth Mm -hmm. as in service of some other moral framework. Yeah. And I should say that people, the people who are the furthest left, who support a lot of these policy changes, concerns about potential harms in science, some of them would say, yes, we should suppress. In fact, I know some people have told me, yes. We should suppress true information because we can't handle it as a society and it would be a disaster. But a lot of people, they frame their concerns around we should suppress these kinds of findings because everyone knows it's pseudoscience bullshit that was debunked 80 years ago. So like people justify their moral positions with empirical reality if they can. And then if they can't, then maybe they'll make the claim, okay, no, this is just, this is what's best for society or something. So, so I I agree with you. Like most people think they're prioritizing truth. It's just that some people think we can have truth and the morally ideal world. And other people think sometimes those might come into conflict. And when they do, let's prioritize truth and we'll handle the consequences. We'll figure out how to deal with it. And if it's bad, We'll come up with another solution besides censorship and suppression of information because that kind of stuff tends to undermine trust in science and has all these other negative consequences. Mm -hmm. When when thinking about how to prioritize, let's say, scientific rigor over some moral good or some actual public health impact, COVID is a great example of this because Mm -hmm. I, I don't know enough about whatever the clinical trial stages are for vaccines, but it seems like that's normally a very long process and it was expedited for the COVID vaccine. And that seems like a good thing, probably saved lives. So that, that was the whole argument, right? It's if we actually do the normal good science process of waiting 10 years, many more people are going to die if we don't get the vaccines out sooner. And it seems like we got them out sooner than normal and that turned out fine. But I bet there were probably some people saying, There's a reason that we have this long waiting period for the clinical trials. And even having that question of, is it a good thing to rush? That's a debate. And it seems on the extreme end, I'm not talking about anti-vaxxers. I'm talking about people saying like, how much exactly is it okay to rush the clinical trial? And again, it seems like it was fine. But then the question is, okay, what exactly are the boundaries for how much of this sort of process can you sacrifice for the sake of we need to rush and, and save lives immediately? Yeah, the COVID is a really good example. And I think it, it also just shows how complicated the issue is because there was, so far as I could tell, some lying. Like the, the mixed messaging with the masks was super confusing. At first, it seemed like there was this confident declaration that they don't work, which was apparently a lie to preserve masks for medical staff and then there was this hyper confident claim you you haven't heard i didn't i didn't know that people 
that you don't remember uh, like very early on in the pandemic. I remember they said masks weren't effective, but I never heard that was to save masks for the people who needed them. Oh, maybe that's just one theory. I've heard people forward that theory and it would make sense to me because why? Whatever. In any case, they forwarded this hyper-confident conclusion that they then said, oh, no, they work and they work really well. And they work so well that you even should be wearing those like Nike latex or whatever those. I even saw at an airport at a time when they were requiring masks, wearing these like mesh bejeweled ones. This is a mesh mask. Or the face shield when there's not a mask paired with it. Really, it's just all going under <laughs> hip under the face yeah. shield. And I don't know. It's yeah. So we got this hyper-confident message that they don't work. And then we got this hyper-confident message that they do work. And then we got this more nuanced perspective. Oh, these kinds of masks might help this one kind right. of thing. And to me, whether people knew or thought they were lying or not when they forward this hyper-confident message... That's an interesting question because it seems to me like, would it have been better if the scientists were like, here's what we think right now. We're not 100% sure, but it's a good question. What would have produced the best outcomes? Like lying or trying to provide the public with the, we don't know, but this is what we think right now. And we hope you'll wear masks and we hope you'll get vaccinated, but we can't tell you for certain that's going to help you. I, I don't know. I don't know. But it does seem to me that a lot of people lost trust in a lot of the recommendations we were receiving as a result of that. And then that can have its own downstream consequences. That's why it makes these things so hard, because we often don't know. Even in hindsight, we don't know, which to me is why I think unless we have a confident reason to believe that suppressing truth is going to be better, and I don't know many cases when we do have a confident reason to think suppressing the truth is going to be better, then at least we know that the truths, that people want the truths, and that when they're lied to, it causes them to feel betrayed, and it causes them to lose trust in science in the future. But There's some interesting social psychology at play where in my personal life, if I would much rather hear someone humble themselves and say, I wasn't sure, or I lied here. This is why I basically apologize for it. But, and when authority figures do that, it's really rare, but I think mm. people love that. But then for whatever reason, they often feel the need to double down and just think, I don't know, admitting that I'm unsure is weakness. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. How much does admitting you're unsure? It seems to me that people really do like the certainty. They like people who claim to be completely confident. How much does that help the reputation of the person? It, it might help your reputation within a subset of people and harm it within another set of people. And so it's really hard. But I, I agree. Like, I would prefer people say they don't know. And I also would prefer people like the New York Times backpedaled so many times throughout COVID. And they would like update, but they wouldn't often be like, back then we said that this was a racist conspiracy theory. And now we're saying it might be true. <laughs> there are just some people say this might be true now. They don't like fully acknowledge the, their former unwarranted confidence and I wish more people would do that too. Back then, we acted as though this was 100% truth that we could say with certainty and probably we didn't have the information we needed mm -hmm. to be that confident. Yeah, often when I'm talking about this stuff with academics, I see this sort of infantilizing of everyday people. So yeah. they, they'll often say something like, okay, you and I can understand 
that the, the science is nuanced and we're unsure and all this is just probabilistic and we can't make any certain claims. Other people don't know that. So we have to lie or have to upgrade the certainty just for the sake of communicating. And I'm like, I'm not so sure that other people won't appreciate the nuance, that non-scientists won't appreciate the nuance. It's, it's a good question. Yeah, I hear people say that they're like, you have to report the truth, but you have to be responsible in how you report it because people can't handle this information. Or And it's an empirical question, really, right? <laughs> what yeah. percentage of the population can handle it? What percentage of the population? So this is actually one thing that motivated a recent paper of mine where I presented people with controversial findings, everyday people. And I asked them, what should we do with these findings? And then I asked another group of people to estimate what other people would want to do with these findings. And we saw that people always overestimated how much other people would use science to cause harm. Um, and I have no reason to believe that scientists wouldn't also show that psychological tendency. I think this is just related to a general psychological tendency to avoid harm, that we're willing to forego benefits to prevent harms. And that's what we saw. People underestimated positive consequences and overestimated all the negative ones. And so we might think if we report this gender difference, then we're going to go back to the 1920s and take away women's rights, et cetera. But the actual risk of that to me seems almost non-existent. And it's not to say that there aren't some people who wouldn't do that, but those people are on the fringes of society and have no power for the most part anyway. And we don't have confidence that everyday people can handle certain information. But again, this is all just based on people's assumptions. Like, how do we know that people can't handle and how are we so confident that they can't handle it that we think lying is the better thing to do? We seem to intuitively gravitate towards the naturalistic fallacy. And I think biologists do a really good job at keeping that at bay. I study puberty and hormones and in their big sex differences in that and brain development and emotional cognitive development. And often they do reinforce certain stereotypes like testosterone is linked to aggression and to sex drives, which makes uh, men more impulsive and uh, women, maybe for hormonal reasons, maybe for social reasons. Obviously it's both nature and nurture, um, but are, are more prone to depression and anxiety and all, all of these things are bad and reinforce stereotypes, but it's not even saying, oh yeah, therefore we should condone, let's say more violence in men mm -hmm. or, or insecurity in women. It's just, this is the starting place. Let's get the facts down and then we can figure out how to remedy it. Right. Yeah. And I, I think we forget like that everyday people aren't always calling the shots on these things. So if so, if some guy on Twitter is therefore it's okay to commit violence, we're still going to have a criminal justice system that's yeah. going to punish you if you do. I'm sorry if you think it's warranted, but no. But similarly, like with the rights of men and women, the people on Twitter who are like, don't let women vote, they don't have any power. And I don't think our government is going to be like, yeah, let's take the vote away from women. Yeah, I'm, I'm both um, surprised and not to hear surprised to hear that those people even exist because I'm yeah, not surprised just because the internet is crazy, but then yeah. the surprise part is, okay, but why would anyone even listen? Who cares? Yeah, exactly. I've seen it like with some of the things that I've posted or written, somebody will be like talking about how women shouldn't be allowed to vote anymore, but it's, yeah, who is this guy? Of course, 
if 500,000 people see this tweet, one person's going to say women shouldn't be allowed to vote and no one cares. Nobody liked it. They don't have any followers and they're not going to influence policy. <laughs> but it understandably, people get worried about those kinds of things because it's hard to predict like a social change and how it could happen. But at the same time, you have to balance that against the cost of suppressing information. And I don't think people always think about that. And then there's another argument we made for just like we should never suppress information no matter what, which I would also listen to that argument. Uh, I don't necessarily know if scientists should be the one making these judgment calls. Like maybe journalists want to say, we don't want to cover this one. But scientists, if they discover something is true, do we want the scientists' responsibility is to pursue the truth? And then politicians' job is how much to sell that information to people, mm -hmm. which I think is another thing that social media is screwed up is now scientists are talking directly to people. And I think that's made people really nervous too. go through the popular science route as it used to have to do. With the open science practices and with the adversarial collaboration, are you optimistic about the direction things are headed? Yeah, I thought a lot about it. I'm both optimistic and pessimistic. Um, big fan of the open science movement. I think adversarial collaborations would be great if they could become popularized. I don't know if they ever will be. I'm trying to make them popular, but as of now, they're pretty unpopular. So those are cool. I also am encouraged to see how many people really want science to be pursuing truth and their support academic freedom, but you wouldn't know it from like being on social media and even attending professional conferences. So I know that a lot of people are really scared to speak up about these things. And if I could give them the courage to speak up, that could have a huge impact on what we decide as academics we should be doing and we should be prioritizing. prioritizing. At the same time, I'm pessimistic because things have only been going in that direction, I think. They've been going more toward the social agenda for science rather than the truth agenda for science. And I think Part of that is because of the growing percentage of women in science, and things are only going to go more that direction, too, because what you have is basically a lot of disciplines are dominated by women, and those disciplines are not looking to get more men. And then the ones that are dominated by men, they are looking to get more women still. So I don't think anyone will be satisfied until we're at like 50 to 100 percent women in every single discipline. And I think as that's happening, as a lot of academic disciplines are becoming like more feminized and have more feminine priorities, I think men aren't going to like them anymore and they're going to do other things. <laughs> so just, just to make sure we're being as critical on, on both ends, do we have data to suggest that it's actually like the, the sex ratio within a discipline, let's say, is associated with these differences in, let's say, how much you prioritize truth or different moral values? So there's no direct evidence for that. However, you do see that in the disciplines that are more dominated by women, for example, the social sciences and humanities are more likely to have these kind of social justice criteria in their hiring practices than STEM. But you could say that's explained by something like empathy, and it just so happens that sure. women are hiring empathy. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying why. Mm. So I think there are a lot of reasons why. Like, it could be... 
I think it's a lot of correlated differences. So women are higher in empathy. Women are more egalitarian. They're a lot more concerned about equality, whereas men are more comfortable with hierarchies. Um, they're more risk averse. So they would be more concerned about potential harms that could result from science. And then I think also men are maybe a little bit more like rigid when it comes to institutions and principles and will stick to those despite potential seemingly harmful consequences. Women are more concerned about protecting people's emotions, their psychological well-being. So I think you have a lot of differences between men and women that are all on their own small, but because they're all correlated and women tend to, with my own research, what I see is like the majority of men tend to support academic freedom and pursuit of truth over other things, whereas the majority of women often support protecting people's emotional and psychological well-being over uh, pursuit of truth and academic freedom. And so whichever group has the majority is going to be calling the shots when it comes to academic culture. So yeah, I, I don't know for certain all of the reasons men and women have these different priorities. I just know that they do have different priorities. And so the fact that as academia has become more uh, run by females, you also see these corresponding changes that are consistent with females' priorities more than men's priorities. It seems to be a plausible explanation <laughs> to me. It seems but plausible. I'm imagining there's more of a self-selection effects going on of the people who become psychologists, for example, even of the men. I, I still wouldn't think then the male psychologists would be the ones prioritizing truth and caring less about emotions. My hunch there would be that as a whole, psychologists care more about that, and it would be mostly women for those reasons, but that it would attract the men with, let's say, more feminine temperaments. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you'd find no sex differences within fields, but across fields, you know, similarly in engineering, you might find that the women are maybe less sensitive to these moral concerns and, and more prioritizing truth and being comfortable with the hierarchy and so on. My guess is that it's probably bi-directional and that women are shaping culture as the culture changes. It attracts more people with those values and then it shapes the culture further and on. I don't want to say like which one came first. Like psychology was probably always a discipline more interesting to women compared to men in relation to other things like physics, which are more like suited to men's interests or more consistent with men's interests. But that said... I've looked at psychology professors and we do see pretty big gender differences among psychology professors who are men and women in terms of their academic priorities. But I would expect that if I looked, if I compared psychology professors to like physics professors, would I see differences between men in those two disciplines? Yeah, probably. I bet the men in psychology have more feminine priorities than the men in physics or philosophy even. Yeah, I think both things are probably true. And that's why there's, because they feed into each other, I expect things to continue going that direction. There's, there, I don't see a clear path toward things turning back the other direction. And, and I don't know if that's the way to think about it. I don't know if we want to think about things turning back the other direction or if we just want to think about them turning in a different direction. That's, yeah, we don't want to cause harms, but let's be scientists about it. Let's figure out what the harms are. What are the real risks? How do we mitigate them? And can we mitigate them without suppressing science? Is that impossible? I don't know. Have you read Steve Pinker's most recent book, Rationality? I think I read like half of it. 
He's got one section on what he calls the mythology mindset. And it's basically like many people, when they're making moral claims, they're not thinking about truth. So if anything, they'll exaggerate to make a moral point. So mm -hmm. if they're saying he likes to use these political controversies, I think there was some weird conspiracy theory of a child sex trafficking ring being run mm -hmm. in a pizza shop mm -hmm. and they called it Pizzagate. And he's no one actually believes this, but what they're saying is I believe the people that I'm claiming are involved in this are so morally reprehensible that they could have done this. So he's saying you need to have this translation or this filter when I, when people are making moral claims that they don't actually want to be evaluated objectively. I think some people do believe me. <laughs> I don't know how many. Yeah, he, but he I've did mention someone... that there was one case of someone who came in with a gun, like yeah. claiming they were going to save the children. This is more respectable because at least he believed it. What's the rest of your excuse? Or, or was that just a signaling thing? Like, I'm committed to this cause, even though... Because, uh -huh. like, sometimes the if you engage in a behavior that's committed to something really radically implausible, it's a really good commitment sing signal because oh, yeah. you're committing to something so absurd. <laughs> Is that kind of related to the evolutionary handicapping idea like the peacock's tail? Uh, yeah, it probably is related to that. So I think some people think about that in terms of implausible religious beliefs. If you're capable of believing something really hard to believe you're really showing you're more committed to the group i guess with the handicapping it's you're showing your fitness because you're yeah i would say those are related probably i don't know if anyone's made that explicit but they probably are similar concepts and you see the same thing with some of these groups that believe for example the world was going to end and then they, oh, yeah, have and they sell all their date. stuff and they're like really showing that committed yeah because. and then it doesn't happen and then they become <laughs> even more committed <laughs> right. So you're like, no, even though we were all wrong, I'm so committed to the cause that I'm not. Okay. Although probably some people do leave the group, but those people lose mm -hmm. status in that group. So Pinker's next book and, and some of his ongoing research is about this idea of common knowledge. So what I know that like you can have many layers of it, but rather than having just infinite recursive theory of mind that reaches a point at which something becomes common knowledge and he's interested in it in the context of political polarization and moral polarization. And the, on one hand, you said that there are certain trends that are happening and it kind of leads to these snowball effects. So maybe there's not that much optimism, but on the other hand, you use this term of silent majority. And mm -hmm. so Steve and I were talking about common knowledge being the explanation for why many people aren't speaking up if mm -hmm. they disagree, because it, the idea is they have like false pretense of common knowledge, essentially, like they think they'd be the only one. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would be maybe an interesting collaboration between you two. Well, that's one of my reasons for optimism. So it's related to preference falsification. Do you guys mm -hmm. talk about that idea? Tamir Kuran, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. but I'm sure yeah, Steve knows about it, but I haven't yeah. seen it. So it's essentially like when you're in a situation where there's a lot of pre preference falsification or people are lying about what they think because they think they're the only one who thinks it, but actually everyone's lying because everyone else thinks X and I think Y, but everyone's right, thinking exactly. Y. What that does is it creates a really precarious situation and potential for radical, sudden, unexpected change because all that has to happen is they have to communicate with each other somehow and figure out oh you also feel that way 
And honestly, part of my motivation for doing this research is because I suspected this was what was happening. And like when I publish this paper, everyone will know, oh, (laughs) a lot of people feel this way. I'm not the only one. In fact, tons of people feel this way. I I get this all the time because I'm like outed on these issues that people will talk to me and they don't talk to each other. And so I know people who are fed up with things, who are in departments with other people who are fed up with things, and they think each other are the enemy, but they think the same thing. They just won't tell each other, right? Right. Because they're afraid that the other one's going to come after them when actually they're allies and they have no idea they're allies. Um, And yeah, I, I do think that if I'm right about how many people are lying and that there's a lot of potential for them to figure that out then there could be a big sudden pushback against some of the more extreme changes that have been happening um, in science. And I think one of the, the most extreme would be the, these Nature Springer guidelines saying okay. they'll reject or retract research if it could undermine the dignity of human social groups. To me, that's it's a little bit, it feels a little, I don't know. That's the, the furthest I've gotten to feeling like we're in a, some kind of like regime of censorship where someone there's a powerful person who's controlling us and telling us what we're allowed to believe is true. Mm-hmm. That's scary to me. But I think almost nobody, like literally almost nobody thinks that's legitimate. I would put the estimate among psychology professors at around 1% of people think that is a legitimate um, threshold for suppressing science. One last question about whether truth should be the top priority in science and Full disclosure, I do believe it should be. So this is more of a a devil's advocate position. Now we talked about if that's not the highest priority, it's usually going to be some other moral end. And earlier you slipped and called it a faith-based belief. And I I don't think that was a slip at all. I think it it is a faith-based thing. But so is the belief that truth should be your highest goal. And people like Joe Henrik have argued that the scientific revolution was really made possible by Christianity and like by Mm -hmm. how much that culture prioritized truth. And and Nietzsche said Christianity died at its own hand, right? Because Mm -hmm. people were so focused on truth and the scientific method eventually took that ethos and then just slashed away the inconsistencies with the rest of the belief system. Given that, it seems like science is always going to have to be predicated on some faith-based beliefs. And it's a, it seems to be a Judeo-Christian idea that truth is that highest ideal. But why couldn't there be any other highest ideal? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I do think that is basically right. I think it's hard to justify truth without appealing to something the truth different. Or truth. Right. Like I, I've talked to people who treat truth as the sort of, it's a good in itself, it's not, it's just something we should care about regardless of whether it has positive consequences in the world. I find myself justifying it regularly, whether I think I should have to or not, but I find myself justifying it by saying stuff like, if we don't have the truth, we can't solve problems in the world. People are going to lose trust in science. We will end up wasting a lot of time and resources on things that aren't going to turn out the way we hope they will because we've been basing our interventions on bad ideas. So I always tend to justify it with, but then my ultimate thing is harm or like human flourishing is the thing that I'm holding up as the ultimate good there. I think you can do that because almost every person thinks that is important, whereas not every person thinks the truth is important, apparently, but most people do. 
So I, what was your question? How can you justify truth as a, an ideal that shouldn't be beholden to any different moral ideals? Instead of always prioritizing the truth, we always prioritize like people's feelings or something. Mm. Right? Yeah. I'll, I'll, with the caveat that I understand, I, I justify truth often with consequences. I, I'll say that I think in science, that seems to be a reasonable priority. Does it have to be a priority? Does that have to be like the global number one priority for human beings in general? I don't know about that. This is why I think scientists, our job could be to pursue truth. Politicians, or let's say policymakers, their job is to take that information and decide, how can I use this to help the economy or create better medical interventions or whatever it is they're trying to do? So we can all have these different goals. But in science, I think at least what we said we were doing was pursuing truth. And then that allows other people to rely on our information to do what they're trying to do, whether they're an activist or a policymaker or a politician or a journalist or whatever it is, or a teacher, parent. All of these people are making decisions with goals in mind. And the truth is beneficial for all of those goals. And it just seems if we're going to prioritize truth somewhere, science is the place to do it. But yeah, I'm not like an absolutist there. I'm persuaded that there are probably certain cases where we wouldn't. Granted, they're more applied cases like gain-of-function research, for example. When it comes to just like understanding human psychology, I'd probably be an absolutist there because what's the harm? What are we going to discover that's going to necessarily cause the end of humanity? I don't think really anything is is going to do that, but I could be wrong. Yeah. So I would say in science, I would say that could be the thing that we're doing. It's the thing that we mm -hmm. say we're doing. And it's the thing that people trust us for and give us status for and it's why people listen to us. And if we don't do that anymore, then I think ultimately we'll become much less useful to other people, which will cause science as an institution to be no better than Vox or something. Yeah. You steel med the case for science much better than I could have, Corey. Thank you. Good. I guess it's just, I don't know. Like I, I, I am pro-truth, but I get it. Yeah, keeping up the intellectual humility, which is a, a cool uh, line of research, <laughs> but don't know if we have time for that. So Thank you Next very time. much for your time, Corey. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun.